Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we're talking about shoulder dystocias. This is another one of the classic obstetric emergencies. So while you may not have a chance to see this one on labor and delivery because it's far less common than postpartum hemorrhages, um, it happens in somewhere between 0.2 to 3% of vaginal deliveries, depending on your population and the definition that you use. The most common definition for shoulder dystocia and the most commonly, most widely accepted definition is failure to deliver the fetal um, shoulders and body with normal downward traction after delivery of the head. So typically what happens is the fetal head comes out um, and is resting on the perineum. Um, and then we provide gentle downward traction on the head to allow the shoulders to come right under that pubic symphysis and become delivered. If with the normal downward traction, we're not able to deliver the fetal shoulders and body, then um, this is when that's when we would call a shoulder dystocia. Um, the big sort of things at risk here, why we care, is that once the fetal head delivers, um, typically the umbilical cord is now in the um, outlet tract and is compressed. So typically babies are not getting oxygenated during a shoulder dystocia. Um, their umbilical cord is pinched off. They also have pressure around their vasculature getting any blood flow to their heads. Um, so they are not getting well perfused. So babies can get hypoxic and they can get hypoxic ischemic encephalopathies um, or other brain injuries. So this is a emergency in large part because of the urgency for baby. Um, and then in the meantime, while you're trying to deliver the baby, you can get things called brachial plexus injuries um, that I'm sure you learned about in the first few years, those herbs palsies and those things if you put more than the normal downward traction on the fetal neck. And you can also get maternal injuries from some of the maneuvers we'll talk about. So um, in this podcast, we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about sort of the origin of um, shoulder dystocia, what you need to understand about shoulder dystocia, but also the logistics of being involved in an emergency and your role as a medical student, what you can be doing in those stressful situations um, to to be really helpful to the team um, and to find your place. Um, okay, so first, shoulder dystocias, we talked about what they are, what are the risk factors for them? How can we try to go about trying to predict these and prevent them? So the most common risk factors um, we see are diabetes, anything that um, can change the um, adipose distribution on a baby or increase the risk of macrosomia or um, large, once they're born, large for gestational um, age um, babies. So um, excessive weight, in, weight gain in pregnancy, um, size greater than dates. So that's, that's the um, term that we put on people whose uterine fundus is measuring well above their number of gestational ages in, in weeks. Um, anything that creates a large baby. A history of a shoulder dystocia, because as we've talked about in obstetrics, a history of X is always a risk factor for X. Um, so whenever you're asked those questions, you can say, what's the risk factor for hemorrhage? Ah, history of hemorrhage. Um, that should always be one of your first go-tos. It is um, just about always correct. Um, so a history of a shoulder dystocia is um, certainly a risk factor, but it's only about a 10 to 15% recurrence, which is far less um, predictive than a lot of people would presume. Um, 
10 to 15%. So the majority of people who have had a shoulder dystocia will not have another one with a repeat delivery. Um, but even a 10 to 15% chance of a shoulder dystocia is concerning given the severity um, of shoulder dystocias. And so anybody with a prior history of a shoulder dystocia, we offer a primary C-section um, because they should not be forced to have another shoulder dystocia if they don't want to, or even a 15% chance of a shoulder dystocia. The other thing that we're going to look for in the moment, um, there's some evidence to suggest that um, labor abnormalities, um, so not progressing normally, or really what's called turtling is the big thing we look at while moms are pushing. So if a patient is pushing and the fetal head is descending really well with the pushing effort and then actively retracts quite a bit in between, the thought is that this could be a sign that the fetal shoulders and clavicle are pressing against the um, pubic symphysis. And while the maternal effort is pushing, they're able to, the head is able to come down a little bit, but they're hitting kind of a hard stop. And so it's more comfortable at rest for that head to retract back into the um, vaginal canal. So if we see turtling, you might see the team members in the room kind of looking around at each other, making eye contact. Um, I often uh, convey this to the nurse in the way of saying, hey, do we have a stool in the room? Um, and a stool is used for one of the first maneuvers we would do for a shoulder dystocia. And most of the nurses know that that's what I'm then thinking. I'm now saying I'm worried about a shoulder dystocia without necessarily alarming other people in the room. Um, you know, OB is one of those places where we do a lot of procedures on awake patients. And um, finding that balance between uh, communicating effectively with your team members without creating panic or anxiety in the patient in unless you need to um, really is a fine line. So you'll see a lot of people with a lot of different ways to go about this. Um, prevention. There's no real way to prevent shoulder dystocias, unfortunately, because they are so hard to predict. Um, we do have a recommendation um, that we offer C-sections to anybody with an estimated fetal weight of greater than 5,000 grams without diabetes or greater than 4,500 grams and any type of diabetes. The discrepancy is diabe diabetes, we think, increases that risk of like central adiposity. Um, and that central adiposity is going to increase your shoulder diameter and the risk that thereof of shoulder dystocia. Okay. So what you're going to see if you're in a delivery room that then has a shoulder dystocia or um, is it really high risk of one? You're probably going to see people um, preparing for a shoulder dystocia. So like, you, like I said earlier, one of the things I often do is I make eye contact with my resident. I make sure they're seeing this turtling as well. Um, if I can conveniently sort of whisper to the, to the medical student in the room as well, I'll do that. But then also ask the nurse if we have a stool. Um, and then I typically look at the patient's belly and I hypothesize the shoulder orientation um, of the fetus in utero. So I want to know, it, are the shoulders facing um, to the maternal left or the maternal right? Um, and the stool should go essentially on the side that the baby's back is facing. Um, and we'll talk about that with one of the maneuvers and why we're doing that. So, and that is all sort of a way to tell everybody what I'm worried about and also be prepared just in case. Um, rather than wasting 30 seconds once we've started it, having somebody go and get a stool, having stuff in the room, I would always rather be prepared for things. So what you're going to see is you're going to see us getting prepared. If we're worried enough, we may kind of have you step off to the side as a medical student, or we may have you stay there and just say, hey, if I ask you to step aside, just do so. So if you're in a room and there is a shoulder dystocia, what you're probably going to do is we're going to have you step back away from the immediate delivery field um, because you're going to typically have a resident and an attending suddenly very involved in this delivery. Um, we are all prepared for things to go as wrong as they can um, because this can be such a bad emergency. So you're, you're not going to be first line. Um, 
But there are some really key ways that you can be helpful during these times. So as you get more comfortable on the wards, this might not be something you feel comfortable doing on your first rotation, but say this is your third or fourth rotation. One of the ways you can, one of the things you can do is to help is try to help minimize family interference. So we're going to have a healthcare worker, be that a nurse, a, a PCT, a patient care technician, something like that on either side of the delivery bed once we've identified a shoulder dystocia, because they're going to be doing maneuvers on both sides of the bed. This suddenly means that some key family member or friend support person is taking a second row seat to the delivery. And they're concerned, understandably. This is anxiety provoking. This is not the beautiful YouTube birth plan that they had. Um, and it's it's unfortunate, but it is for their safety really important that they not get in the way of these important maneuvers. So one thing students can do that can be super helpful is if you feel like you are a calming presence. And I caveat that because if you are nervous and sweating and your voice is shaking, then maybe this is not the right time for you to be um, doing this. But if you are a calming presence, stepping back to the family and, and kind of slowly um, explaining things to them while the um, delivering providers are going to be talking to the patient. So oftentimes that means just pulling dad a step off to the side and say, hey, if the shoulder dissociation is actually happening, hey, the baby's shoulders are a little bit stuck. They're going to be doing several things to try to help um, get the baby delivered quickly and safely, uh, but they just need a little bit more space to do so. She's in, you know, your partner, your person is in really good hands. They're going to do everything they can to take good care of both patients, the mom and the patient and the baby, um, or, um, and they'll come and explain everything as best they can as soon as things are a little bit calmer. Um, but something to sort of explain a little bit, don't have to say too much if you don't know what's going on, but also just provide a calming presence and somebody that they can, um, ask a quick question to or say, you know, how can I help? And quite often the answer is, just be a support to your um, to the patient. Um, sometimes they can be really up far close to the patient's head, kind of calming the patient while um, the team members are down closer to the pelvis, things like that. Um, the other thing that's really helpful during a lot of emergencies, not just obstetric emergencies, is offering to be a timekeeper. Um, in almost every delivery room in most hospitals, you're gonna have a whiteboard or as a medical student, you guys are often very well prepared with pen and paper, um, but either find a whiteboard with a marker or find pen and paper and write down the time that things have started um, and take out your cell phone, whatever you need to do, start a timer and say, it's been one minute. And the really helpful thing is every two minutes, you just announce it's been two minutes and the next two minutes, it's been four minutes. Um, and you're keeping track and writing down when different things are done. Um, pediatrics arrived at um, one minute, 30 seconds. Um, second attending arrived at you know two minutes, 40 seconds, whatever it is so that we know the process of events. If we then have to go back and like document all of this stuff later, it's hard to do from memory. And when you're in the moment, 30 seconds feels like five minutes. So it's really hard to estimate after the fact. So timekeeping in codes when you're on trauma or in any of the ICUs, timekeeping when um, any emergency is happening can be very helpful. Um, okay, so then the actual things that you're going to see during um, a shoulder dystocia, and I'm going to kind of go through these quickly because I don't expect you to know many of these. So like I said, I want to know the shoulder or orientation. Um, the first thing we do with a shoulder dystocia is simply announce it because while I may know it and my resident might know it, um, the nurse might not know it and we need more people. So the first thing you're going to do is announce the problem. So you're usually going to hear the resident call, we have a shoulder dystocia and they're going to say it calmly but firmly. Um, and this is going to alert the primary nurse and the PA 
needs nurse in the room, typically there's two nurses at a delivery, that they need to activate whatever the hospital protocol is for getting more help. Um, typically that includes calling anesthesia, calling pediatrics in the NICU, um, and then calling like the charge nurse and additional nursing support. You're then going to have, if you don't already have a stool, a stool brought in or the bed lowered, somebody's going to jump up on the bed to help us with what's called McRoberts and suprapubic. McRoberts is we take both of the patient's legs and um, they get hyper um, flexed, uh, like knees to um, ears pretty much, as much as they can with their flexibility range. And then somebody's going to jump up on the um, table, or if they're tall, they don't have to, um, but they're going to use a firm fist to try to collapse the fetal shoulders and have them roll inward to decrease the diameter between the two shoulders. So instead of having flat shoulders, like you're laying down in your bed, you're going to kind of curl in and around yourself, bring your shoulders in. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring those shoulders in towards the chest um, to collapse that anterior posterior diameter or the shoulder diameter to allow it to fit better out that pubic outlet. That is McRoberts and suprapubic. That is always the number one first thing we do. Um, that will resolve a lot of shoulder dystocias, but not all. Um, if that does not work, um, we're going to try next one of many maneuvers. More recently, the evidence has suggested that going for the, what's called the posterior arm is the most effective next step. So typically that's what um, we a lot of us do, but not everybody. Other people have their own preferences. So a bunch of maneuvers that we can do posterior arm, you put your hand in behind, underneath the baby, like closer to the perineum, slide it down, and you're trying to um, get the baby's posterior arm to deliver first. And then that will allow um, that anterior shoulder to dip down below the pubic symphysis and deliver as well. There's also rotational maneuvers called wood screw or Rubens in which you're trying to rotate the baby if like the shoulders to be on a diagonal instead of at a 90 degree angle to the um, pubic symphysis to see if that allows for better... Um, uh, a better fit through the pelvic outlet. Um, and there's something called Gaskins where we can rotate the patient to all fours and see if either the maternal rotation or if the simple movement allows dis, um, like the uh, impaction to disengage. And then sometimes you need more room. Sometimes it's simply a soft tissue dystocia. And that's when something like an episiotomy may come into play. Episiotomies are not very common anymore. Um, we really don't do them unless we really, really need to. And a shoulder dystocia can be one of those rare situations where we really, really need to get more room. Sometimes it's simply um, to get more room to physically fit the provider's hand in to deliver that posterior arm. Um, or sometimes it's simply a soft tissue issue and you need that to get the baby posterior enough to come underneath the pubic symphysis. If you have tried those things or you just know it's not going to work, the final maneuver that you may hear about is something called a Zavinelli, which is um, you reverse the cardinal movements of labor, replace the fetus into the abdomen, and proceed to an emergency C-section. That is incredibly rare. Um, it, I mean, rare enough. I have never physically been present for one. I have been peripherally involved in teams that have taken care of two. But in all the years I've done this, I've never personally been involved in any of them as a student, a resident, or as an attending. Um, honestly, knock on wood, really hope not to um, have one be that bad. But they um, that is sort of your last-ditch effort to get babies out. You may also hear about other things done in other countries. Um, uh, some physiotomies where we actually like cut the pubic symphysis and deliver the baby. Um, these are maneuvers that are were, um, more commonly done in lower resource settings, um, but are thankfully not very done very often in the U.S. anymore. Okay, so quick recap. So shoulder dystocia can be very morbid for either baby and or mom. Like I said, those episiotomies and things can lead to fourth degree tears, fecal incontinence, bad things for mom. Um, and 
treatment, obviously baby is at risk of brachioplexis injuries and hypoxia, hypoxia, hypoxic ischemic events and things like that. So shoulder dystocias are an emergency. They are bad. Um, the majority of them are relieved within two minutes and don't have any lasting sequelae, but we treat them as a very significant emergency because they can be. Um, if you see one, really safe roles for medical students are either to be a family support person and to prevent any um, family um, interference with the procedure or to be a timekeeper. Those are really two very safe, easy things you can do to be very helpful in these emergency situations. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, those are the big things I think you're going to need to know. Risk factors, diabetes, excessive weight gain, anything that makes you think the baby is size later, greater than dates, um, or a history of a shoulder dystocia, or looking for that turtling at the time of delivery. All right, that's all I got. Have a good day, guys. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready Pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.